Welcome to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast with me, your host, Pastor Ivan Mawarire. When I'm not organizing people to defy authoritarian regimes, which is what got me imprisoned and tortured in Zimbabwe on a number of occasions, I serve as the Director of Education at the Renew Democracy Initiative, where our mission is to confront authoritarianism everywhere. Every week on this podcast, I speak to ordinary people who have done some pretty extraordinary things. And we try to glean from the experiences. And today we explore something that I know all too well. What do you think one of the most underestimated occurrences in our very connected lives could be? Believe it or not, it's loneliness. As connected as we may be with our gadgets, our apps, our events and meetings, many people are lonely and they they just don't know how to deal with it. It's possible to be present in a crowd of people, to operate in a team or to be connected in relationships of sorts and yet be so far from all those people. And the way I look at it is that there's a difference between being alone, which can be an intentional decision to be removed from other people, and being lonely, which can be a result of failing to find a place to belong or circumstances outside your control that separate you. In today's conversation, I talk with someone who knows this struggle of loneliness all too well. Leopoldo Lopez is a firebrand democracy activist and politician from Venezuela. He was locked up in solitary confinement in a military prison for four years and held under house arrest for one and a half years by dictator Nicolas Maduro. Dramatically and thankfully, Leopoldo was able to escape and now lives in exile. His encounter with loneliness has some very intriguing takeaways. You want to stick around for this. Leo, thank you for spending time with us to hear your story and your experiences today. Welcome. Ewan, my friend, it's a a great honor to be in your podcast, to share with you uh, our common struggle, because it's a a common struggle, it's a common experience. Um, And uh, one one of the things that has really struck me over the past years, um, as, as you said, I spent four years in a military prison, then a year and a half in house arrest, I escaped house arrest, and then another year and a half at the Spanish embassy. So in total, it was seven years. Uh, I was able to escape by the end of last year, of uh, 2020. And since then, I've been meeting people like yourself from many different countries, from African countries, Eastern Europe, um, Latin America, Asia, people who, like yourself and myself, have been in prison, uh, who are now in exile, people who have a deep commitment to fight against autocracy, not from the theoretical perspective, but from the very most very profound convictions of, of a life experience uh, that, that led us to uh, become freedom fighters, uh, to become uh, those individuals that are willing to be at, at the front line of the struggle for freedom. So it's a great honor to be with you, my friend, and to to share with you and and the people of your podcast. Leo, uh, your story is fascinating. And every time I hear you speak and articulate not only what you went through, but what you were fighting for, um, I I always come away amazed, inspired, uh, sometimes a little sad, but but I think the, the most amazing thing that you do is to always relay a sense of hope and a sense of being able to overcome. I remember we were together in D.C. some months ago 
and I was talking to you about how afraid I, 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 I often am that I'm being followed. And I actually remember this so clearly. We were crossing the street and you said to me, but Ivan, that's exactly what they want. They want you to be afraid. And at some point you have to understand that you have a life to live and you have a mission to complete. That struck me deeply, uh, Leo, and uh, it's something that will not leave me for a long time. No, thank you, my friend. And, and I, I am convinced that that is true. Let me just start by telling you that I, when I, my first night in prison, and I'm sure you can relate to this, the first night is uh, it, it's, it's a moment that one remembers almost by the second. You, know, you remember almost every minute of it. For me, it was very striking to hear the, the final noises uh, before complete silence and before complete loneliness. Uh, so I heard the, the sound of the lock of my cell, a very hollow sound that uh, repeated like nine times because there were nine locks and nine um, barriers from the entrance uh, to the cell. I remember the footsteps of the guards. Um, and then I remember the, the loneliness, the silence, and the sound of the night. Uh, at that time, I, I remember as well thinking very clearly that from that moment on, um, the battlefield of my struggle for freedom was my head, was my, was my head and my soul. Um, I am an activist. Uh, you know, when I go to the airports and they ask you, you know, what's your profession? I always proudly sign, I am an activist. That, that's what I am. Uh, and, and I am an activist of the streets. And I have been promoting um, nonviolent protest for many years now. I did it when I was mayor of uh, the capital of Venezuela, Caracas. I was mayor for eight years. Uh, then I was disqualified to run for office. So I had to rethink of, uh, and reinvent myself. So I started a movement for nonviolent resistance. And I went around Venezuela, not once, but um, dozens of times. And I riled um, people up. I, I asked many different people to join us in this nonviolent movement to confront the dictator. So I was always in the street. So my battlefield was always the street, was always the people, was always um, trying to get a message across. And all of a sudden, that changed dramatically. Uh, all of a sudden, it all changed from the streets, from the people, from the noise, from the excitement, from the fear, um, from the certitude or the uncertainty of fighting the fight in the streets to the certainty that I was going to be alone, uh, that I was going to be in confinement, that I was uh, a prisoner, uh, a prisoner of conscience. Um, I can tell you that I prepared myself for this because nobody's really prepared, but you can, you can do some things to, um, to be in a better shape. So in, in 2013, there was a warrant for my arrest uh, that came out, and then the dictatorship took it back. Uh, so I wasn't arrested at the time, but that was a very clear signal for me that this was coming. So I had a very important conversation with my wife, Lillian, who has been the most important support uh, for me all throughout these years. And I told her, I said, listen, my love, um, this, this, it didn't happen this time, but uh, this is going to happen because I'm going to take, you know, the, whatever I can do to the limit. I, I have no fear of the dictator. I have no fear of losing my freedom. I don't even fear of losing my life. So it's, it's, it's very possible that I will end up in, in prison. 
So we need to prepare ourselves in, in all respects. Uh, and I was very glad that I did that because it prepared us as a, as a couple. Uh, it prepared us uh, strategically. And I also took the time to prepare myself to go through some biographies of people that, like you and like me, uh, had gone to prison. So I, I read about many different uh, experiences. I read the experience, of course, of Mandela in Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, I, of course, read uh, the writings of Gandhi. Uh, I read the, um, the testimony of a um, Catholic priest uh, in Vietnam, uh, Cardinal Van Tuan. Uh, I read the testimony of many Venezuelan political prisoners, even historical figures that were in prison. And of all of that, uh, the circumstances were very, very different. But of all of that, I could see that there was a common um, reference to having a, a routine uh, and to having a routine when you are in prison. Uh, my prison uh, was in solitary confinement. So I spent most of the time of uh, my four years in a military prison under solitary confinement. So um, it was very clear to me that I needed to put together a, um, a routine. And for me, it ended up being a very simple uh, routine um, that I, in a way, made reference to when, when I was studying philosophy as an undergrad, um, that one needs to take care of the mind, of the soul, and of the body. So that was my routine, the mind, the soul, and the body. So every day, with Spartan discipline, I would pray. Uh, I am a Catholic, like many Catholics, I'm a mechanical Catholic in the sense that I was baptized. I did my first communion. I would go to church. But uh, I was never confronted with uh, the, the need to be close to God as a lifeline. And, and, you know, I, I think I need to be very honest by saying this, and I think this is the situation of many people. But I was very glad that in my mind, in, in my history, I had that link with God. So I became very disciplined. Every day I would read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I did my spiritual exercises, and I did my praying with a, with a lot of discipline. So that was the, 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 first, the first pillar of, uh, of, of my my routine. The second was basically to read, write, or exercise my intellect in whatever way I could. At first, I had access to books. Then they took away the books. At first, I, I had access to pen and paper, and then they took that away. Um, at one point, um, I only had the Bible uh, because when they took my books away, the director was, uh, um, he said, that he was an evangelist. I think it was very hypocritical about his faith. But anyhow, I told him, you cannot, you cannot uh, take away from me the word of God. So at least give me the Bible. So I was given the Bible and I read the Bible from Genesis to Apocalypse. So I had to exercise my, my intellect uh, through meditation and other means. And then every day I would exercise. Uh, I've always done sports. Um, I've always been involved in mostly extreme sports. I've always been very disciplined about my sports. So in a way, I think um, that prepared me to confront, as you very well said, it's very different to be alone than to feel lonely. I never felt, I never felt lonely. I always felt that I was in the presence of God. And I always felt, of course, that I was with my family and, and the people who, who cared about me. 
the people from my party, from my movement. So I never felt alone. Leo, listening to you is just fascinating to to hear what it felt like to, you know, you talked about uh, in your narration, hearing the nine locks that would uh, be some of the last sounds you hear before silence. You talked about how you prepared yourself and 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 just how you endured this time in solitary confinement. I mean, this is and I think sometimes people don't understand what solitary confinement means and not just confinement, but in a military prison, it meant that you were completely disconnected. You were a most celebrated mayor of the city of Caracas. You had received awards and even up to today, continue to receive awards for the work that you did. What was it that caused the Maduro dictatorship to bear down on you and eventually uh, arrest you and cause this separation. And, and, and you know what, as you answer, I know that our listeners can hear the voice of your, of your daughter in the background. I don't want to, I don't even want to ask you to quieten her down because you only got back to your family recently. And you know, I, I feel like that's, those are natural sounds you missed for, for years. I don't want you to miss those sounds. So I want to allow that voice of that little girl to come in and out of our conversation today, because I think it's a, it's a powerful emblem of, uh, you know, you surviving this loneliness. Let me um, share with you the story of my daughter, since you mentioned her. So this is my youngest daughter. When I went to prison, my eldest daughter, who is now 12, she was four. My son, who is nine, he was one year old. That's that we only had two children. So that was in 2014. In 2015, um, when my wife visited me, when they allowed her, I started telling her, I want to have another, I, I want to have an, another child. And she said, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> you need to be free. <laughs> I mean, what are you, what, what are you talking about? And I said, no, let, let's put our mind to it. So for us, having a, a, a third child became a nonviolent protest in itself. I told my wife, we cannot let the dictatorship decide the side of, of our family. Uh, they already took away wow. my freedom. They already took away uh, the possibility of us being together. So we started planning um, to, uh, to have a coincidence of locks and, and biology to meet. Uh, and we planned... <laughs> for <laughs> almost two years. And uh, Mother's Day of 2017, um, I was allowed to have a visit. Uh, uh, and that day, the magic happened. Uh, so that child that you're listening in the background, she was conceived in prison. And wow. she, she was, um, in a way, my most um, celebrated and, and cheerful Nonviolent protest I've ever been involved in. <laughs> you, know, you know something, Leo? I did not at all expect that our conversation today would would talk about having a child as a form of nonviolent protest. But what an amazing uh, outcome of 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 your imprisonment i guess of your your sense of mission your sense of family and it, it this completely changes our discussion about loneliness because you 
<laughs> you absolutely changed that whole situation and, and decided, no, I am going to do what I need to do despite what they are trying to do to me and separating me from my family. Wow. So, 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 so what was the reason? that they put you in prison? It all started uh, when I was mayor of Caracas. Uh, I was mayor of one of the five municipalities of Caracas. And, and that municipality became the center of all the, the protests. Yeah, you know how this goes. Um, I'm sure you have the same experience in Zimbabwe, where there was a specific place that became the, the, the place in the city that was the reference for all the protests. And that was my municipality. And, and I was always very supportive when I was uh, mayor. At that time, mayors had a lot of autonomy. So I was um, in charge of uh, a police force, uh, or an, a, a transit police force, fire department, um, of a healthcare department. And it was uh, considered at the time the most effective and renowned and respected uh, police force in Venezuela. So we actually protected the, the protests and it became a, a safe place to protest and to gather people before they went to other parts of the city in order to protest. So I, I, I've been active in protesting against uh, what was at the beginning a bad government and then it turned out to be a dictatorship very soon, uh, since the very beginning. And I, at the time, I had a blessing and a curse. Uh, that was the, the support of the people in Caracas. At the time, uh, this is 2007, 2008, uh, I had more popularity and more support than, than Chavez uh, when in, in the city of Caracas. So that became my curse. So when, when that became evident uh, and I started to get the spotlight of, of the support and of, uh, of public opinion um, beyond my municipality all the way through the entire metropolitan area and beyond, um, that became uh, the, the reason why I was um, attacked first. Um, I had several murder attempts. Um, I've had three murder attempts uh, in one of them in the year 2006. Uh, a friend of mine uh, died uh, in my arms, in my car. Um, his name was Carlos Mendoza. Uh, and in, in the other two um, opportunities, uh, people close to me were shot in the leg and in the arms. Uh, I was um, abducted. I was hijacked. Uh, uh, and in another um, point, they threw all sorts of accusations against me, all sorts of accusations. Uh, and then they disqualified me to run for office. I was going to win with a large majority of the vote, the metropolitan area. Uh, and they disqualified me. Um, so, as I said before, I reinvented the way in which I was going to continue the struggle. So I, I was very clear that in order to fight for freedom, you don't need a badge. I mean, you don't need to be a mayor. You don't need to be a public officer. I mean, you just need to be a concerned citizen uh, willing to do what it takes. Um, so I, I went around the country and I started to uh, gather people uh, around a very concrete idea that was um, understanding that the solution to all of our problems um, had one main gate, uh, which was getting rid of the dictator. So um, we were the first movement that started talking about dictatorship in Venezuela. We started talking about the corruption of Maduro. We started doing investigations and protests uh, um, because of the corruption. 
we showed the links uh, of Maduro with the drug trafficking cartels. Um, we started to uh, present the violations of uh, human rights, not only inside Venezuela, but elsewhere. Uh, so I became very, very active. Uh, and it was very clear that, uh, that uh, they would either kill me or imprison me. Uh, I think they thought that by imprisoning me, um, that was going to be the end of it. Uh, but fortunately, um, that was not the case, primarily because of my wife. And this is something that, that I think is important to, to mention here, um, that political prisoners are primarily supported by their families. I mean, the, then the political movements and then the people in general and then foreign governments or, or other organizations. But, but the main support is uh, its family. So my wife became my voice. My, my wife is a school teacher. She's a sportswoman. She was a Venezuelan kitesurf uh, national champ. Um, she was a, a yoga teacher as well. So she had nothing to do with, uh, with politics. But she's uh, a very committed and charismatic woman. Uh, and that allowed uh, my voice to be heard through her. So she went around the world. Um, she started uh, at the beginning, nobody would open the doors. She would knock the doors of foreign affairs um, ministries all over Latin America, Europe, the U.S. At first, they would meet with her in cafes outside. And they wouldn't share with her the official emails they would send. You know, they would give personal emails in a, in a, in a napkin, uh, but she's very consistent. And, and I think in a way, also what I said before, because she was trained as a sportswoman like myself. I, I do believe that sports and, and uh, the discipline that sports gives you, it's, uh, it's very important to, to face these struggles. I might be biased because that's our case. But Do you find that some of the loneliness that you were experiencing or being alone as you were locked up, do you find that she had to deal with that as she approached different places and people? You know, I mean, just as you tell the story, I'm just trying to imagine how she felt, you know, not being met in public or people almost not wanting to be seen with her because they know the dangers. Do, do you find that there was a there was a translation of that of that loneliness in on in terms of in pursuit of a mission, almost. Well, of, of course, uh, uh, she felt lonely, but uh, but again, I mean, I, I would always tell her, continue. You know, this is like climbing a mountain. You know, it's tough, it's cold, uh, it's steep, uh, but we want to get to the peak, and, and um, you know, we we are here to overcome obstacles, and, and we will make it. So I, I would always support her as well, and uh, and and in a way, when, when you have a mission. Um, you can accomplish uh, amazing things. So uh, I've thought a lot about, as I'm sure you have as well, about the meaning of, of happiness. Um, so for, for many people, happiness is um, achieving material um, things. Uh, for others, is status. Um, for others, could be any other thing. But, but I think, and, and this is, is my experience, that True happiness comes with purpose, whatever purpose you have. So if you have the blessing to wake up every day and to understand that you have a purpose and that your mission that day is to do something to be closer to that purpose, you are blessed. 
and, and it doesn't matter what that purpose is. So I, uh, I felt that very strongly, and I know my wife, my team, my family uh, also felt uh, that sense of purpose. That's actually uh, amazing you say that because I remember thinking about this many years ago that I think one of the things that solves a sense of loneliness is not so much trying to find people to be with, but to find a purpose to pursue, to find a mission to accomplish. And suddenly you don't feel alone anymore. Suddenly you don't feel like you are, you are, you are, you are abandoned. You have something that you are putting your, your mind to. I want to ask you this, Leo, when you were leading the protests and you were uh, now seen by so many people as someone who was uh, an icon of hope or someone who became a symbol, uh, you know, of, of, of something that they, that they aspired to, did you have to then deal with the moments when you are thinking about the things that you don't tell those people? Like, you know, I remember when I led the movement in Zimbabwe, the fears that I had were things I dealt with in, in my own solitary place where I was, I, I almost didn't want to tell people what I was afraid of the most. How did you deal with that? You know, when, when you then thought about what the work you were doing could mean to you personally and to your family, did you, was there, did you share that with the thousands of people that followed you, that supported you, or did you keep that to yourself? No, I, I mostly kept that uh, to myself. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, it might have been good to, to share, you know, the uncertainties, more than fears, uncertainties. Because fighting against autocracies, it's, it's not a straight line. I mean, it's a, um, it's a snake road. You know, it's a, it, 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 it has many curves and, and it's a cycle. You know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Sometimes the hopes are up, as many times hopes are down. Sometimes you feel change is very close around the corner. And sometimes you see change across the ocean. Uh, yes, there, there was a lot of uh, uncertainty. But again, we, we had a, a mission that we were doing the right thing. I mean, that we were on the right side of history and that we needed to, to continue. So my, my responsibility was to, to lead in the sense that uh, I needed to give assurance that what we were doing, although it, uh, it entailed uh, many risks, it was the right thing to do. And, and I remember when we were preparing for the protest because we prepared ourselves for months I can tell you even years, I went around the country training thousands of people, talking to thousands of people and getting them ready for the moment when massive protests uh, could happen. Some people think that massive protests happen spontaneously. Sometimes they do, but, uh, but when they become um, more effective is when you are prepared to deal with them, not for one day, but for weeks and weeks turning on months. So I always told uh, the people that I, I, I was going to uh, assume my entire responsibility. And if time came where I needed to go to prison, that I was going to confront that. And since I said that many, many times, and that's what I actually did, I think a lot of people were encouraged to continue uh, because they saw that, you know, we were not just bluffing about our commitment, uh, that our commitment was, was true and that we were willing to put um, our own freedom at stake uh, for the freedom of Venezuela. And, and that led for a very courageous movement. And I think the most important training um, 
any individual part of a movement could have in this process is uh, the training of the soul, the training of the attitude. Everything else is mechanic. If you don't have the right attitude, you're going to fail. Uh, if you have the right attitude, the tools will come in handy, but that's secondary. So mm, I, I mm. think that, that leadership in that sense is about inspiring. There's, there's a, a particular point in your incarceration, Leo, where something happens, and I'm not sure whether it was good or bad, and, and I want to find this out from you. There's a point where your your incarceration is moved from the military uh, facility to your home, and they put you under house arrest. And really, in a sense, they turn your your family space into a jail. But how did that make you feel? How did you deal with that? Because now they've brought this loneliness, separation, persecution, punishment to your home. The first uh, comment is that I was sent to house arrest after four years, and that's not something I asked for. I actually told my lawyers, told my family that I didn't want to go to um, to house arrest because I knew exactly what was the thinking behind uh, that decision by the dictatorship, which was to take the pressure down. And I was willing to continue to um, be in prison until the other political prisoners uh, were released. Um, and I remember that that process was a long process. The uh, ex-president of Spain, Zapatero, who unfortunately and very shamefully has become the main lobbyist of Maduro. Uh, he would come several times to my prison cell at midnight uh, and try to persuade me to negotiate with Maduro and to go to house arrest. And uh, in between his visits, I was able to get um, a guard to, to send me or, or to give me a cell phone. So I was able to record a video message for the people. And I said, you know, continue the fight, continues, continue the protests. Um, and I remember clearly one night, it was a Sunday night around uh, 8 p.m., um, the vice president of Maduro and Zapatero were there sitting with me. And the vice president, who's a very evil woman, very, very, very bad um, uh, person, she took out her cell phone. I remember it had a red case covering it. And she showed me this video and she said, what is this? And I said, what do you mean? What is that? That's exactly what I'm telling you. I don't want to go to house arrest. And I believe that people should continue to protest. So they, they, they went on fire, you know, and they just, um, reacted very harshly on me. And they took me into a, a, um, punishment cell for 45 days. Um, they gave me putrefied food, um, and at the time, I, I remember I did an, another type of protest that might sound uh, crazy, but what I did was, I, as I told you before, I've always been involved in combat sports. So what I did is I started, I had a very, very thin mattress, almost like a, like, like, like a sheet, like a, uh, like a cover, not a mattress. So I put that uh, in, against the wall and I started punching it. Um, so I broke my knuckles uh, and, and they started to bleed. Uh, a lot. Anybody who's who knows um, you know, or has experience in combat sports, you know that that you know that, that, like um, not breaking the bone, but breaking the, the surface of your knuckles. Um, it hurts, but but it doesn't hurt that much, and it bleeds a lot. So that became a paintbrush. 
So with my fist, I, I painted something that I knew it was going to be very shocking for the guards. So I had this image of um, Silence of the Lambs when Hannibal Lecter was uh, in a cage and he, he, he took a guard and then he uh, actually hanged him uh, around the cell and had this very, very creepy, very uh, dark image of a, like a blood angel. So I painted this against the mattress. Um, it was very, very large. I mean, it was the size of a mattress. And then I continued to bleed uh, and I painted against the wall, no more torture. So when the guards came, they were completely in shock. But, but Leo, Leo, you had the mural you painted, you painted it with what? With my blood. You painted the mural with your blood? Yes. With, with my knuckles, with the blood in my knuckles. So uh, that, that was, again, very, very shocking. And when the, when the guards came in, they said, um, you, know, what, you know, are you crazy? And I said, yeah, my friend, <laughs> you know, I am. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, if you, don't, if, if you don't give me, fine, if you don't give me food in, in, in good state, you know, I will continue. And I said, well, we'll take the mattress out. And I'll say, do it. And then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hit the wall and you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to hit my face and my face is going to become, you know, you're going to have to tell the world what happened to me. Uh, and you know, I'm willing to do this. And, and, and for me, you know, this might be a shocking story to your listeners, but it's a, it's a reference to, again, the attitude, because when you face autocrats, you need to be convinced that you can go beyond the red lines that you can, that you can, you know, you can walk the last mile that you can really take things to the limit. And, and, and your counterpart, your adversaries uh, need to know that. And they very well knew that I was willing to take all the risk. And when I told them, you know, that the next, if, if you don't give me food in, in good state, um, the, the, the next thing you will see is my face completely broken. Um, they knew that I was capable of doing that. And I am, I was capable of doing that. Um, because, uh, I had and I have uh, a huge sense of, of, of commitment to, to our cause. Uh, and our cause, uh, again, our purpose requires sacrifices. And, and when you're dealing in extreme situations, you need to be willing to, to sacrifice. So, mm -hmm. so that's um, mm -hmm. in the end, in the end, uh, they brought me food. <laughs> so I won. I, I'm finding this both incredibly inspiring and shocking at the same time and just realizing that you took a time and a season of being confined, being almost ab abandoned and alone and turned it into productive time in really the most bizarre way. But it did yield the result that you were looking for. Well, it, it, it did not, it did not yield the, the end result, which is to get rid of the dictatorship in Venezuela. So I can tell you, uh, and I'm sure you share this, um, we do have a, a sense of frustration because the dictator is still there. I mean, in a, in a way, I am sure I, I share that with you, with our friends from Hong Kong, with our friends from Belarus, from Nicaragua, from Cuba, and from many other places, people that you and I have been meeting uh, all throughout these years or, or this past year. Um, but I was able to, to commit uh, to, to what I was doing. So... Um, so that was, that was a moment that was very intense. Another very intense moment that I had to go through 
was in uh, in 2015. So in, in 2015, um, we were being um, psychologically tortured, and our family uh, was being um, treated in a very humiliating way. Uh, the guards would uh, strip naked my wife and my mother in front of my in front of my daughter. That was very humiliating and very shocking for my daughter. So I I decided um, that I was going to start a hunger strike. So um, then I was able to communicate with another political prisoner um, and said, we're going to start this, but we need to think this through. And again, I started trying to read. Um, at the time, I had some access to some reading uh, about the hunger strikes, the dynamics of hunger strikes. And these are very difficult dynamics. And it's very difficult to be successful in a hunger strike because you have a very limited period of time by which you can pressure. Um, so the key to, uh, to a hunger strike is that um, whatever you ask for uh, has a possibility to be delivered um, within a period of time that's uh, under 40 days, because that's, that's as far as you can take it. So at the time, we were pushing uh, to have the date for the parliamentary elections, and the regime, the dictatorship, was unwilling to publish the date because they didn't want to have the election. Um, and they had the their right reasons because they were going to lose, as they actually did. Uh, but there was something that they needed to do uh, that was to set the date before six months before the, the election. So that was May 2015. And I knew I had there was this window of opportunity before June. Uh, so we started the hunger strike and I went into hunger strike for 28 days. Uh, so like 100 political prisoners all over Venezuela. Uh, also went into hunger strike, and um, hundreds of people outside, uh, they went into hunger strikes in, in the public squares of Venezuela. And in the end, we were successful. I, I guess in, in, a, in a sense, one of my questions, you know, as you, as you narrate this, is how the time you spent in prison and uh, the protest and the the confinement, being alone, how that changed you? Did that did that change you in 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 ways that are distinct today when you look back? Oh, no, for sure it did. I mean, I, I I mean, I think it it allowed me to to evolve. It allowed me to be a, a better person. I, I think of myself as a as a better human being uh, after that experience. I think that I became more. Um, aware of the need to be patient, uh, of self-control, uh, of uh, understanding very clearly that life and politics, of course, it's a cycle and that many times you are on top, but that you need to be very clear that once you're on top, you're going to fall because uh, that's just the way it goes. One of the biggest lessons that I, that, that I, I took from that period is that um, Leadership, in, in a weird way, is, is about confronting um, the difficult moments. Um, it's very easy to be a leader uh, when you have all the means, when you have the support of all the people, when you have the, the means and, and the conditions. Uh, what is very hard is when you're crossing the desert. So I, I, I became very interested in, in understanding the parts of the lives, the, the, the moments in the lives of, of people I admire that they were crossing the desert. Um, I did the hunger strike for 28 days, lost 14 kilograms, 
uh, in the end, we were successful. We were able to uh, have the regime set a date for an election. And I can tell you, in, in that period, I was elevated, my friend. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that in all religions, fasting is always part of, of the process of praying. I mean, if you want to do intense praying, I mean, fasting is always present there in all religions, if you think about it. And the reason for that is that, you know, fasting, um, uh, the, the physiological impact on your body, in your body, that in a way it, it elevates you, in a way it, it, it changes your, your sense of, of time and space. And if you are in, 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 a, uh, in a deep meditation, in a deep prayer, I mean, this becomes the conditions for a very intense spiritual uh, experience. Um, and and I, I tell you, you know, I, in, in, in a weird way, I, I hope I can have that, uh, that intense uh, spiritual experience again. Um, life in all of its facets, and, and I think spiritual is also true, that sometimes you live very intensely and sometimes you don't. I, I don't have any remorse or any regrets for the time I spent in prison. Maybe the only one is the, the fact that my family had to suffer uh, being away, um, being separated. And, and in, for a year and a half, um, they made my house a prison, not just for me, but for my children and my wife as well. Uh, but even though that's uh, something you know, very, very important that I feel and I, uh, that I, it's not that I regret, um, but, but that is there. I, I have um, a view of that experience uh, as an overall growing experience in, 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 all of the, in all of the ways. Leopoldo, I, I cannot tell you how energizing it is to hear your story, to hear how you dealt with some uh, situations that really for most people seem um, uh, impossible to deal with. And as you spoke about loneliness today with us, I think there's a lot of lessons that just ordinary people can can learn. And I, one of the things I love about you is how you view yourself as just being an ordinary individual. Uh, thank you for letting us into your story. We're coming up onto time, and I, I wish we could ca uh, carry on going. But but thank you, Leopoldo, and we 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 want to be routing for you here at Frontlines of Freedom, and to most importantly do something that's very close to your heart, which is rally the peoples of the world to stand up against autocracy. And I know that's something that's uh, close to your heart. So thank you so much for being with us here today. No, thank you, my friend. I want to encourage you to be optimistic, to be cheerful, and to know that we are in the right side of history in this global struggle between autocracy and democracy. Thank you, my friend. You know what I find to be the most refreshing thing about Leo's story? It's that he, he accepts his seasons of loneliness as being just that, seasons. Leo used almost every moment of his incarceration to advance some part of his life and mission. And so when he looks back on it all, there's a positive sense of accomplishment. Now, I know that we all cannot be like Leopoldo, writing murals on the walls of a prison in your own blood is, is quite a thing to, to do to uh, drive a point. 
But I think his story shows us that even as we are forced to face a world of increasing separation, we can still find companionship with the things that really move us, the, the mission, the purpose of our lives. And with that companionship of purpose often comes a community of people who will walk with you through the deserts of life. Man, what a story. Join me again soon. Bye for now.